Okay, so we are going through the book of Luke. Please rise for the reading of God's word. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We not only like to hear the Bible around here, we really like to get it in front of us. The words are really burning into our brain. A couple of Bibles up here, front row, front row Bibles over here. If you don't have a Bible, keep the Bible. Like everyone to be reading God's word, it will, it will transform your life if you give it the chance. Okay, verse 29, this is, oh, what chapter? Thank you, Luke 21. Luke 21, we're going through Luke, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. This is Jesus speaking. In verse 29, it says, Then he, Jesus, spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And that day comes upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare, meaning a trap, on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are heavy words in this chapter, and we need you to bring them to life. Lord, I pray this morning that your word will have the effect that you want, Lord. Maybe a very different effect than what we want. We want what you want to happen in our hearts, Lord. We want hearts for you. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see ears to hear, hearts to understand what you're telling us, Lord, at this time in November of 2013 in Boston. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. So, this is sort of week number two of a response that Jesus gives in verses 8 through really 36 of this chapter 
it's all part of Jesus' response to just a couple of questions that the disciples had asked him. 28 verses are dedicated to this response of Jesus. Now, in the parallel account in Matthew, Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus dedicates 93 verses to responding to a couple of these questions. 93 verses. By far the longest response by Jesus recorded in the Bible. What were the questions? It's really long answer, so it's important that we ask, well, what, okay, what's he answering? Why was it so long? Well, one of the questions the disciples gave him that prompted his very, very, very long response was just simply, what will be the sign of your coming? What will, what's going to happen? How will we know when it is that you're going to return to earth? The other question needs a little background, a little explanation. They actually asked really two questions. The first was, what's going to happen right before you come to earth? The second was, needs a little explanation. Jesus had been in the temple courts in Jerusalem. The temple courts, it's open sky. It's not like here where we do church inside. It's 22 degrees outside. You wouldn't like it very much if we moved up to the, into the patio over there. They're outside. He's in the temple courts. He's just a couple days from being arrested and crucified. Some of his disciples are admiring the stones that the temple walls were made out of. Each stone was 36 feet by 7 feet, 50 tons. They're all stacked on one another. Now keep in mind, it's 33 A.D., it's not 2013 where you can stroll into a lot of different places and see massive stone, concrete, steel structures. This is 33 AD. And there's 50-ton stones stacked on one another. This was uh, really, this temple in Jerusalem was known throughout the world at the time as, a, as an architectural wonder, as an architectural phenomena. 50-ton stones. They found one of the stones, 600 tons. How'd they get it there? It's like Stonehenge. Who knows, really? King Herod had built it. It was an engineering architectural wonder. And some of the disciples are looking at these massive stones. You didn't see this back in their village. Well, Jesus is not really impressed. And he says in verse 6 of this chapter, that we're in. He says, these stones which you're seeing and you're admiring so much, the time is coming when not one shall be left upon another. They're all going to be thrown down. Every one of them. What? They're all going to be thrown down. Really? So, how are we going to know when this is about to happen? Because obviously it's going to be some gigantic calamity and we want to be out of here. How are we going to know? Tell us the sign that we're supposed to be looking for. 
That was the second question. First question, what will be the sign of your returning to earth? The Bible says, Jesus says repeatedly that he is going to come back. He came once to die for sin and reconcile us with God. He'll come a second time to establish his kingdom. So last week we were in the first 20 verses of this, uh, of Jesus' response here in Luke. If you weren't here, you may want to pick up the CD. But what, what, we, uh, what we saw last week, Jesus' response to these questions, how he responded, he began by answering these two questions by describing what he calls in Matthew birth pains. He says, you're going, to be, you're going to see birth pains. Right before I return to earth, right before this temple is destroyed, and it was 40 years after this, this time right here where Jesus is in the temple courts, 40 years later, every stone was torn apart. It was, uh, they were actually dug up, and not one of them was left upon another, just as Jesus said. But he says... Prior to the time of my return, you're, and the time that this temple is destroyed, you're going to be seeing birth pains. Birth pains, he says to them. And we described what some of them were last week. Can we put those up? We have that list on the next page. False religion is going to be seen just increasing in the land. Man-made views of who God is. People saying, well, really, I am the way. Follow me, this type of thing. You're going to see wars. You're going to see natural disasters such as earthquakes and hurricanes. You're going to see famines, disease. That's verse 11. Persecution in verse 12. And he describes these things as birth pains. You see that in the book of Matthew. Now, last week, I put up this very interesting verse from the book of Romans, Romans 8.22. This is Paul writing to the Romans. Paul says, we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains, same word, together until now. And so with this verse, uh, with this verse right here, we, we learn that the, the physical word groans and labors here, the physical world rather, the physical world groans and labors with birth pangs, meaning with earthquakes, with pestilence, with famine, with, with, with disease, hurricanes, typhoons, these kind of things have always existed since the time that Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. When sin came into the world, the Bible says, it not only affected human life, it affected all creation, all life. So why are they referred to by Jesus as birth pains? And in Romans chapter 8, why are they referred to as birth pains? Because as every mom and hopefully every dad knows, birth pains increase over time, both in frequency and intensity, which is Jesus' point in Luke 21. 
in Matthew 24. So in the chapter we're in, he starts describing these things. And his point is they're going to increase prior to my coming. They're going to increase in frequency and intensity. Now, what is a follower of Jesus supposed to do? What are they supposed to be like as these birth pains, these signs, these events increase? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to respond to that? And we talked about this last week. Look at me just We'll get eventually to verse 29 where we started, but look at me uh, with me at verse 24. It says, Jesus says, prior to my return, it says, uh, they will fall by the edge of the sword, meaning there's going to be wars, and they'll be uh, led away captive um, into many nations. Skip to, uh, rather, that was 24. Verse 25 says, and there will be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. And on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. And then verse 26, note this, it says, men's hearts failing them from fear. Men's hearts will fail with fear, it says. Now notice though in that verse, verse 26, it doesn't say your hearts. It doesn't say your hearts. This whole chapter in chapter 21, Jesus is talking to his people who, the men and women who believe in him, his followers. He's saying you, 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 you throughout this chapter. Verse 8 says, be careful you are not deceived by false religion. Verse 9 says, when you hear of wars, do not fear. Verse 14, he says, settle in your hearts that you do not worry when you are persecuted. But here it says, it makes a distinction. It says, when these happens, these happen, things happen, men will fear. Their hearts will begin to fear. The point is, but not you. (laughs) But not you. Listen, the Bible says that every single believer in Christ, every single one of you who has Put your trust in in Christ, giving your heart to Jesus. At the time you gave your heart to, to Jesus, you're given a gift, the Holy Spirit. You are given a gift. And the Bible says that you literally become the temple of the Holy Spirit. This temple that everyone was admiring was destroyed And the Bible says that that temple, which God used to actually, the Holy Spirit used to be there in the most holy place in the temple, in the most inner sanctum of the temple, the Holy Spirit dwelled there. You got actually as a shining light, Shekinah glory. But the temple was destroyed and replaced by you, the Bible says. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit that you have received is not a spirit of fear, but of love, of power, and a sound mind. A sound mind. Wouldn't that be great to have a sound mind? It's what the Bible says that every single believer in Christ has the privilege of having 
So men's hearts will f- may fail from, fi- from fear because of all these things, Jesus is saying, but not you. Not you. Last week I put up a couple other verses as well to, to, to teach about what Jesus was teaching about how you must respond uh, to all these things when life seems to be going out of control, when the world seems to be spinning out of control. I put up to these two verses. The first one, do not love the world or the things in the world. Jesus had warned them at the end of chapter 20, the previous chapter, do not love the world like the religious hypocrites do. Don't do that. Enjoy the world by all means. You're commanded to in the Bible to enjoy the world, but don't love it. Don't let your heart get rooted into it. And then we put up another verse. The, the, the very, it's the point of this whole chapter, really. Look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, you put these three things together. Number one, the Holy Spirit, the fact that he lives inside of you. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Number two, you, 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 a relationship with God in which you are not loving the world or the things of the world, but rather they are becoming dead to you, in a sense. And number three, you're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. You put those three things together, and you will be able to go through anything, anything that comes your way. That's why they call this the good news. You go and try and look, find anything out in the world, anything in the world which will allow you really to withstand anything that comes your way. You're not going to find it. You can't just go to CVS or Walgreens and pick off the Holy Spirit in a bottle and start guzzling it. That's not going to, that's not going to allow you to withstand anything that comes your way. You're going to wake up after you've downed that thing. And the reality of the, uh, of what's, uh, of the world, what seems to be, you know, getting out of control around you is going to come right back. So then, verse 27 of this chapter says, after signs that will appear in the sun and the moon and in the stars, going to be really freaky before Jesus Christ comes, says the world will see Jesus coming in a cloud with power and glory. And when that happens, all the birth pains will be gone. They will be gone. All the birth pains, they go, they disappear. The Bible says that when Jesus returns to earth, judgment will happen. Jesus will establish his kingdom and the birth pains, all things bad, all things bad on earth will end. Listen. All things bad, human, wars, violence, persecution, deceit, lying, stealing, adultery, and all things, uh, they're going to end. But, but also, even creation, even the birth pangs of creation will end. Romans chapter 8, verse 22 speaks of the groaning, that the earth literally groans because of whatever, famine, pestilence, earthquake, volcanoes, this type of thing. The book, the book of Isaiah says that when Jesus 
returns. Chapter 11, verse 6 of Isaiah, it says this. It says, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. You know, you read this verse, and you just let it sink in. Wow. Sin, rebellion against God. And oh boy, is the earth rebelling against God. The effect that it's had on the world. Because this is how the world was created to be. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. So all of that I give as an introduction to verse 29 where we began this morning. Jesus in verse 29 says, then he spoke to them a parable. Now the parable, Jesus does here, what he does here with the parable is he more or less gives a summary of everything else he just said. In other words, he he repeats his point, and, and guess what? God does that in the Bible because he knows we're knuckleheads. He knows that we're not gonna, it's not going to sink in if we just hear it once. Whenever you see something repeated two times, three times in immediate succession, it's like, hmm, this is something that we really need to pay attention to. We resist. We put on the back burner. We just view as a myth and a fable if we're not careful, this subject of Jesus' return. But it's the longest response to any question recorded in the whole Bible that Jesus gave. Really, really important. And oh, will it affect your walk with God. It will affect your interaction with the world if you have a good, healthy view that Jesus is coming back. He says in this parable, look at the fig tree, verse 29. A parable is, is basically a representation of a, of a truth. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that the summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, meaning birth pangs, know that the kingdom of God is near, meaning as they increase in frequency and intensity. Now, some people believe and man, do Bible com commentators fill up the shelves with commentary on these verses here. And many of them believe that the fig tree here and the fig tree budding is a metaphor, a sign, if you will, that the nation of Israel being regathered in 1948. I don't think that. 
don't throw spears at me or whatever. I know some of you uh, are, hold very close, tightly to that. Uh, to that, you hey, look, don't trust anything I say in the Bible. That's what I, we say all the time here. You go and study it yourself. You come to your own conclusions. Now, I do believe there's many prophecies about the regathering of Israel in 1948 all over the Old Testament. We just went through Daniel and Ezekiel all throughout those books. I just don't think this is it. A fig tree is a budding, a fig tree budding is one of the classic signs in the Middle East of spring coming. And verse, uh, verse 31 says, it says, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. In other words, just as a fig tree after it buds, you know summer's coming. When these birth pangs increase in frequency and intensity, false religions, natural disasters, um, uh, disease, famine, persecution of believers in Christ. And then ultimately, he says, and signs in the heaven, the, the, the moon, the stars, the, the, the sun, signs. You go out on the internet and you can read all this stuff about blood red moons coming up. You know, I take all that stuff. I, I'm skeptical. But, but it's those kind of, uh, of signs that will precede his coming. When you see it, just like a fig tree, when you, when you see it, it it's, it's in full bloom. You know the summer is coming. That's um, what I believe his point is. Then in verse 33, he says this. Rather, verse 32, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation, this generation will by no means pass away until all things take place. Another Bible verse that there's lots of opinions on. Uh, By this generation important. He doesn't mean the generation that existed at his time. Obviously, that generation uh, is long dead. They've long passed. The word generation can also refer to race or rather to the descendants of the people he was speaking to, meaning the Jews. And he's saying the Jews are not going to be, are not going to pass from the earth until all this stuff happens. Satan has been trying to eliminate the Jewish people for 2,000 years. What a fruitless pursuit. Jesus says it can't happen. Every other ethnic group on the face of the earth, if you are an anthropologist or a historian, you see the ethnic groups over uh, you know, a, a few hundred years, they eventually assimilate, particularly after they're scattered around the world when Jews do, L- uh, rather uh, like the Jews, like what happened to the Jews. Jesus says here, the Jewish people are not going to, y- y- you will see them, the Jewish people will actually get to see all this happening. That's his point there. Verse 33 says this, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will by no means pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, he says in verse 33, but my words will by no means pass away. You know, that's a pretty remarkable statement 
especially when you consider that in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40, verse 8, says this. He says, the word of our God stands forever. So here in this verse, Jesus is not only communicating to everyone that he's God. We better listen to Jesus because he's God. I mean, what kind of fruitcake, nutcase would be saying something like this unless they're the son of God? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. He's communicating to them loud and clear that he's God. But just as important, he's also saying in the loudest, clearest, most unambiguous way that his return, his second coming, his establishing his kingdom on earth will happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not these words I have just shared with you. Verse 34. Rather, if I could just return to verse 33 for one second. You know, one of the things that he is preparing his disciples for here by saying things like this, by saying things like, you will sooner see heaven and earth pass away than these events not happen. They will happen. He's preparing them for mockers, right? He's preparing them for people like, who are saying, what? Jesus coming back? You're kidding me, right? He's preparing them for that. You know, one of the people listening to him right now is, was the Apostle Peter, right? He's, he's listening to all this. And Peter wrote years later, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he wrote this. Know this, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, that scoffers, mockers, will come in the last day walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? In other words, he promised he was coming. I don't see that. For since the the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And what, what he's saying is people will say, look, everything's been the same for the last 100,000, 10,000 years. Nothing's changing. Jesus isn't coming back. And Peter responds to that in verse 5. But they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished. He's reminding them that God's done this judgment thing once before in the flood. And it will happen again. And then he says in verse 7, he says, but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word, the word of God, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, and now he speaks to believers in Christ. He's speaking to you here, but beloved. This is the apostle Peter speaking. Do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord One day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. In other words, he's not not slothful or lazy about uh, about the promises of, of his return. 
but he is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, the time of Jesus' return is delayed because he is in the process of gathering everyone into his kingdom. And if he came in 1987, I'd be in deep doo-doo right now (laughs) because I had not given my life to the Lord. I had not given my life to Jesus. And so Jesus back over here in Luke 21, he's preparing people. He's preparing his disciples for uh, for mockers uh, who would come. And then he says in verse 34 of Luke 21, he says, really important verse. He says, but take heed to yourselves. In other words, you be careful with your lives lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing. Carousing. What does carousing mean? Actually, if you go into the root Greek word, it means to elevate yourself. It means to lift yourself up. It means to get high. It means to, it actually, it also means, the, Greek, the underlying word means to remove yourself, to, to do whatever is necessary to remove yourself from the, from the fear of your current circumstances or the anxiety of your current circumstances. To smoke weed, whatever. Drugs, alcohol, pornography, you know, going on spending binges, whatever it takes so that I just don't have to think of my current circumstances. Jesus says here in verse 34, take heed to yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And that day, the day of his return, comes upon you unexpectedly. Now be careful how you read this. Be careful that you understand the heart of Jesus here. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to his children. He's talking to you. He's not saying, and many of us struggle with this because we grew up with a image of God like he's walking around with a bat. You better not get drunk. You better not get high. And and you better make sure that, you know, uh, you do all your homework and you better make sure and be nice to people. He's not saying it like that. He's he's saying it. The, The Bible says in Psalm 103, it says, It says, God knows our frame. He knows we're made out of dust. He knows we're weak. He knows we live in bodies that are fallen, that are fully capable of saying, I've had enough of dealing with my reality. Give me a joint. I have had enough of of seeing my life spin out of control Get me a fifth of of whiskey or get me a porn site. You know, years of counseling people who go into pornography, I have learned this, that a primary motivator of going into pornography, sure, there's an element of lust, but the thing that fuels the lust is frustration and fear 
and pride and lack of control with one's circumstances. That's what drives people into pornography. It's this, it's this verse. Jesus says, take heed, be careful, lest your hearts are weighed down by carousing drunkenness uh, and the cares of life. You know, I read this verse and I must take it really seriously. I hope that none of you are thinking, oh, Pastor Steve, he would never go and get drunk. He would never do such a thing. I hope you're praying for me and you get that thought out of your head because as I look through the Bible, some of the greatest men of faith did just that. Look at, look at Noah. Is there anyone who's a greater example of faith than Noah in the Bible? We're talking about a man who continued building his ark 120 years, people laughing at him. And he just kept on going and going and going. But after he got up that ark, he's, he's considered looking at the world around him, wiped out. That was a hard one to take. And he got stone stinking drunk. Lot, after he escaped from Sodom. You know, we, we read the story of Sodom being destroyed by fire. And well, an interesting story. Can you imagine the city you just lived in being wiped out? Lot went into a cave and got stinking drunk and had sex with some women he wasn't supposed to be having sex with, carousing. The Bible, the, yeah, a wise person once, a wise man once said, the greatest saints are capable of the greatest sins. But guess what? The good news is this. The amazing thing is this. You, me, we have something that Noah did not have. And I take great heart in this. You, me, we have something that Lot didn't have as he's freaking out because all all his friends were dead in Sodom. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when, again, when you give over your heart to Jesus, immediately the Holy Spirit invades your life and takes over. And you become the temple of the Holy Spirit. You put that along with a relationship with the resurrected living Lord Jesus Christ in which you, you love not the world and you put that together with a relationship with Jesus Christ in which you are longing for his return You can overcome anything. 
anything, the Bible says. You're in a much better place than Noah or Lot were. As crazy as that sounds, that's why this is called the good news. Verse 35, for it will come as a snare. What will come as a snare? Jesus returned to earth on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth because if you're not ready to receive him, there will be judgment. If you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, there will be judgment. That's why it says in verse 35, it will come as a, as a snare. In other words, you're going to be in big trouble, man. Verse 36, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things. Now, this chapter is not about the rapture, it, it, the rapture of the church. The Bible teaches that the church will be actually raptured out before many of these events. And the world will enter into a time of what's called the Great Tribulation, a time in which many people will come to Christ. This appears to be a reference to that. Matthew 24 has a lot more about the rapture, those 93 verses over there in Matthew, but this chapter is more really about the time when Jesus comes to earth to establish his kingdom. And it says here, pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass. The Bible says if you put your life and your trust in Jesus, you will escape, you will be raptured out you will be taken out and into heaven to reign with Jesus. And you won't be dealing with this time period. You will deal with the birth pangs that the earth has suffered since the beginning of the world as they increase in intensity, but not the final time of tribulation just before Jesus' uh, return. It says, pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that they will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Verse 37, and in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at the night he went out and stayed on the mount called Olivet. Then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. You can imagine why. I mean, this is heavy stuff. And they were waking up really early to come in and hear him. Only a couple days, because he would be arrested and crucified, and we'll be over on that in the next few weeks. I'm going to close this morning. We're going to close, actually, with communion. Actually, could the worship team come up? And I'm going to do something a little different. Uh, chapter 22 here is about the very first communion. The first uh, 22 verses are about the very first communion. The very first Lord's Supper. And I think it's important. The Bible says that when we prepare for communion, when we uh, prepare for the cup, and we prepare uh, for eating uh, the bread. It says that we should prepare our hearts. It's a heavy thing. The cup represents the blood of Jesus Christ. The bread represents his broken body. And we should prepare ourselves. Now, there's some very interesting things 
This is how I want to prepare our hearts this morning. I want to just continue reading some of these verses and as in chapter 22 about what actually was going on during the very first time that anyone has ever celebrated a, the cup and the bread in a communion service. The very first one. This is it. Well, it says here in, in verse 1, it says, Now the feast of the unleavened bread and drew near, which is called Passover... And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. So as the first communion was about to happen, they were plotting how to kill Jesus. You just can't go out in public and say things like, verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my my words will never pass away, and expect that religious people who do not know God most religious people, by the way, do not know God, including the ones that were plot, the religious ones that were trying to plot to kill Jesus. You just can't, you can't just go around saying things like this and expect them not to come after you. And so they were plotting to kill Jesus. Verse three says, Satan entered Judas. First, only mentioned the Bible of Satan entering someone. Demons, there's... Place in the Bible, demons enter people, but not Satan. It says, enter Judas named Iscariot, who was numbered among the 12. <clears throat> and so he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how they might betray him to them. And they were glad and they agreed to give him money. So they agreed to give Judas money in return for information about where he would be. Verse six, so he promised, Judas promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. So consider this as you are are about to have communion. Jesus had the first communion with his 12 disciples, including Judas. Judas was right next to him. Jesus knew what, G- what Judas had already done. Judas, Jesus called Judas a friend. But when he was next to him, while they were having the last, that this first supper, this first communion, which was the last supper, Jesus was indeed in every way, shape, and form an enemy. And Jesus knew it. And he's sharing the cup with him. This man, Judas, who Jesus had washed his feet in John chapter 13. This same uh, Judas who Jesus actually gave him power to go out and do ministry and see miracles. So, you know, there, there, there is an actual, there's a psalm which predicts the fact that Jesus would be betrayed by a friend. And in the psalm, David is speaking. It's a predictive prophecy, and he's saying, 
man, I could have taken it if it was an enemy. But you, even you, we broke bread together, even you. We sang songs and we went into the, with the throngs of the multitude to, to go worship God together, arm in arm, even you. You're the one who betrayed me? As you're going into communion, consider that Jesus knows what it's like. He knows what it's like in, the, in your life, that time that you were betrayed <laughs> by the dearest of dearest of friends, the dearest of dearest of family members, he knows what that is like. And even as it was happening, he was sharing the cup and the bread with him, Judas. That's God's standard for you. I'm sorry if I'm the first one to break the news. You got to share your life. You got to share yourself. You got to share your own blood, which this cup represented, the wine, with even the worst of the worst of the worst of your betrayers. Now, we know that's only possible because the fact that Jesus not only poured out his blood for us and died, but he rose again and he's given us the Holy Spirit. We can only do that. We can, only Jesus can do such a thing. But the Bible says now we have Christ who lives in us because of the blood and because of his resurrection. Verse 8 says, And then he sent Peter and John and said to them, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, following him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. In other words, get the Passover meal ready. Get the cup ready. Get the bread ready. Why is it so secretive? Some commentators think because he didn't want Judas to figure out where he was going to be. He wasn't going to ruin the Lord's. He wasn't going to let Judas ruin the Lord's Supper. I don't know. That's just speculation. But interesting sort of secretive thing going on here. So they find, verse 13 says, they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he said to them, with fervent desire, in the, in the Greek it says, I have desired with desire. It's like desire synergy. <laughs> you know, he's saying, I've just so much wanted to share this last meal with you, is what he's saying. With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God, which is a reference to him coming back and establishing his kingdom. 
Notice, it says in verse six, again in verse 15, he says, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. And then in verse 16, for I say to you, I, I will no longer eat it until it's fulfilled. Till what's fulfilled? The Passover. He says, I, I really have wanted to eat this Passover with you. What was the Passover? It was a celebration of when the Jews had escaped from Egypt. And on the night before they went, we've been through this. We, a couple months ago, we went through it. On the, on the night before they escaped Egypt, what happened? The angel of death went throughout all Egypt and killed the firstborn. But God said, if you want to not have that happen to you, you got to put some blood over your doorpost, the blood of a lamb, a lamb that's perfect, a lamb that's un- that doesn't have any defect of it. If you want that angel of death, that destroyer, to pass over your house and go to the next one, you put the blood of that perfect lamb over the doorpost as well on the sides of the doorpost. And of course, the blood on the top would have been dripping down to the bottom of the floor. It was a cross. Jesus says here, with fervent desire, I, I have desired to eat this Passover and, and I will no, no longer eat it until it's fulfilled. Well, Jesus fulfilled the Passover. When that angel went through Egypt to the houses of the land, again, it, that angel didn't look at the people inside, whether there was rapists in there, murders, druggies, you know, slanders, liars, cheaters. It didn't look at, at anyone who was inside to make a decision of whether or not those people would be saved. The angel only looked to see whether there was the blood. People who had trusted in the blood. So I trust in the word of God that the blood's going to save me. And the Bible says the angel of death passed over all those houses. The next day, they were saved from Egypt. The Bible says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me, except through my blood. The Bible says only the blood of Jesus can make up for, can cover, can atone for, can wipe away all our sin. Let me tell you, if you're like me, you've racked up a whole lot of sin, a whole lot of rebellion against God in your life. The good news, and that's why this is called the good news, is that the blood of Jesus covers it all simply by faith. Yes, put the blood over the door of my life, Jesus, if you've never done that. When the worship team begins, they're going to start playing. Come up. We're going to have some prayer people up here. Actually, if you've been asked to pray, can you please come up now? We're going to have some prayer people up here. Just come up here and pray alongside of the people that are up here. Yeah, I want this. I I, I want to give my heart to Jesus. I want to trust in what the blood of Jesus on the cross has done for me. Or, as we're just preparing for communion, if there's anything else you want to pray about, anything, any burden on your heart, come and pray about it. We shouldn't be taking the cup and having the bread if there's some kind of angst, 
burden that needs to be lifted off of our life because the Bible says the cross and the resurrection happened so that we wouldn't have to be burdened with that anymore. And so before we take communion here at Calvary Chapel, we just pray. Just pray and let go whatever is going on. So if you want to give your life to Jesus or want to pray, please come up at this time as the worship team begins. And then at, at your leisure, in the back, there's cups back there, and there's, there's bread. And just at your leisure as the worship team is, pray, is playing, just go back and get them, return to your seat, and we'll have communion together.